Jesus, we just want to thank you for Pete. Thank you for the wisdom that you've planted in him. Um, and we just want to say, open that up today, Lord Jesus, that what you've put inside his heart, inside his brain, inside his head, that will come out clearly for us to be challenged by your word and to move us forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dottie. Thank you, everybody, for giving me time to speak. Um, I... Uh, <clears throat> Thanks also for setting me up about the Trinity. Um, I hope it will please you that we're not going to be doing any $5 words about um, what the Trinity is exactly or uh, all the historical arguments that have been had about it. If you wanted to sum up my theology in the smallest nutshell it will fit in, it is that I love Jesus. And that's kind of it. Upon everything else I would yield in the argument you know if, if if it's very important for us to describe God a particular way I love everything true and nobody's more excited to talk about it than me but sometimes you have to get down to brass tacks a little bit and think what am I actually willing to die for and then what am I really willing to live for and build upon because the thing is about life I mean, I know some people only really find Jesus moments before they pass, and that's tremendous. I'm glad that his arms are open as wide for them as they are for me. Hooray. However, I, I found him a long time before I die. You know, I, I came to him and I wasn't yet a man, really. So I have had to learn that Jesus calls us to the ultimate sacrifice, to offer up our life in spirit and truth and to be a living sacrifice, to give him our lives and say, please live through me somehow. And I find that whole thing just so splendid and remarkable. I could talk about it all day. But I've learned that this space, particularly in church, um, once we've been able to gather and actually worship God, this space is not just for speaking about the things that we're interested in, or amused by, or um, that we find remarkable. It is for preaching the gospel, to speak in tune with the Holy Spirit and breathe life into the people that come to Jesus. And so there are lots of things that I'm interested in and that I believe are true that I won't say from up here. Um, this space particularly, I'm trying to find God in the same way I just was trying to find God in the singing. And in the same way, when I got out of bed this morning, I tried to find God in a moment of quiet prayer. It's the same activity because Jesus is in heaven. And that's hard for me because I want him to come back so he can be here. And so I pray, come Lord Jesus. You know, I can't wait for you to return. Woo! But while he is gone, he's not absent from us completely. He's here by his spirit. And what I find to be true is that he is an all-consuming fire. That's something the Bible says about God. Our God is an all-consuming fire. This image is, is of a blast furnace of utmost intensity. And um, it's, it's very difficult to find the love for that fire sometimes because it seems so terrible and awe-inspiring that we can't help but shrink back from it. But God's miraculous invitation is that if we come to him in Jesus, we are able to draw close to the flame 
and be changed by it, but not destroyed. But not destroyed. So I can come close to the unapproachable majesty and glory of God and be changed, even improved, upgraded, like um, iron ore. Right? The, the rocks that you dig out of the ground, you bring it close to the blast furnace, and the rock is changed. You know, the crud kind of falls off and, and breaks away and, and becomes nothing, but there's an essence in there that is purified. And that is what happens to me when I get close to Jesus. You know, it's possible for me to believe in Jesus and to have a very high opinion of him, but yet never really get close to that furnace, never really get close to the fire. And I would do so at my, at my loss. I find that if I ditch church and I ditch meeting with God at home and I ditch prayer time with my kids, if I, if I get rid of all that thing and think, sure, I can live without it, I technically can. But this wonderful process of drawing close to the fire and being changed by his power and likeness and love, oh, I wouldn't miss that for the world. So I keep doing it. And I keep doing it even when church isn't that good of an experience because nobody's got their organization together. Or when I'm feeling bad because horrible things have happened to me in a week or I've had to mourn the death of a loved one or something like that. Even if I'm having a terrible time, there is still a way that I can gather together with God's people and draw close to him and be changed by him. And I think that's just so wonderful. I want you to come with me on it. Um, believe it or not, I have a few slides for us to look at today. I know we don't usually do things that organized, but here we are. Um, if you could show us the first one, Joshy, I'd just like to bring someone to your... Um, uh, uh, this, is, this is Tim Keller. He's a lovely, lovely old bloke, and he died this week, sadly. Um, he um, was a famous Christian pastor and author, and he wrote some really, really wonderful books. And he had this, um, the, way, the way I describe it is like, do you know the, the like peppers, green and red peppers? Um, when a pepper is young and, and first growing, it's always green. And hands up if you prefer green peppers to red peppers. Two. All right. So some of you really like that sort of fresh salady, maybe bitterness that, that's sort of very savory. Hands up if you prefer the red ones. Yeah, they're riper, they're sweeter, they taste better. Come on, we all know it. When we come to Jesus, we might be ever so bitter and ever so new and get it all ever so wrong. And that's what Jesus does is he ripens us. I remember it happening to my granddad, who also passed away a few years ago. He came to Jesus in his 50s. He was already sort of a fully formed bloke who'd already lived his life, really. But he came to Jesus and he's crying his eyes out on the floor at the prayer house, as people sometimes do. And he's giving his life to God. And, and this change just starts to happen. And where he was a previously only very prickly old man, he suddenly got soft and squishy and he found love in his heart in a fresh way. And I was just, you know, I was a child, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was seeing until I was quite a lot older and I realized what an effect God had had on him. And as he got closer to God, God had sort of cooked him and ripened him and softened him. And 
I, I just think Tim Keller is a guy who's like a living example of that. Because when he was young, he wrote some stuff and he was quite prickly, quite, quite spiky about some things. And as he got older, the books, he was just like, oh, I just love God. He's so great. Oh, let's just get more of God in our lives. Oh, I love it. And he's really cool. Um, can you show us the next slide? This is a famous book he wrote. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. And it's not in honor of him that I speak, because it's in honor of Jesus that I speak up here today. But I'd like to take the main idea from this and make sure you all leave with this idea in your hands. And it's this. The prodigal God sounds like some sort of wrong label, doesn't it? Because usually it's the prodigal son. And God is not the prodigal. God's the good one. We're the bad ones. So just show us the next slide there. The prodigal son is a famous parable that Jesus taught. And he spoke it out to describe what God is like and kind of what we are like. And I'm going to um, read it to you and then just take you through a few things that are so important that we know because drawing close to God is so important that we actually do. But, you know, if I draw close to my wife all the time but never learn, learn anything about her, I'll have missed something, won't I? We have to kind of get to know him. In Jeremiah, he was, um, God gave Jeremiah a word and Jeremiah said to a very boastful people, he said, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that they understand and know me. That's the kind of boasting we can do, that I actually know God. I know what he's like. I know who he is and he knows me. And we're close. Listen to this parable. <clears throat> this is Luke 15, if you like reading along with things like that but I'll read it out loud. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father one day, father, give me my share of the estate. And so there were two sons. So the father divided the property between the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he now had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That word squandered, he was prodigal with it. Wasted it. But after that, and after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pig food that the pigs were eating, but nobody would give him anything. He came to his senses and he said, my father's servants have food enough to spare. And here I am starving to death. I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me please like one of your hired servants. And so he went up and got up and went to his father. But while he was still a very long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran out and to his son, threw his arms around the boy and kissed him. The son 
began to give his speech and he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But dad doesn't listen to the whole speech. Instead, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the, the ring on his finger and new sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf and let's kill it and have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, there was an older son also in the field. When he came to the house, he found music and dancing and feasting. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? And they said, your brother has come back, he said. And your father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate because he has him safe back and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. But the father came out and entreated him. The son said to the father, listen, all the years I've been slaving away for you and you've never, and I've never disobeyed your orders, but you've never even given me some young goat to celebrate with my friends. But now this son of yours who's prodigaled, wasted, squandered your property with prostitutes. He comes home and then you kill the fattened calf for him, from a party. My son, said the father, you are always with me and everything I have is whose? Yours. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother was, of yours was dead but now he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. We have the next slide. So prodigal, we, we hear the story, we understand the idea, and we get to think about the son who wasted everything. And we think prodigal just means bad, means lazy, wasteful, loser, wrong decisions, bad life, worthy of our big neighborly sneering judgment. But actually, that's not really fair to the idea that's, that's there in the text. Prodigal just means, like, it, who likes a scone? Who calls it a scone? Who calls it a scone? Who's from the northeast and calls it a scone? <laughs> What's better, a very sparsely spread scone? or a very prodigiously spreaded scone. Prodigious, prodigal, they mean the same thing. They mean abundant, lavish. And I'm always lavish where clotted cream is concerned. How could anything that good be bad for you? I don't believe it. So the thing that the son does is he takes this mountain of cash off for wild living and he's prodigious with his money he's a prodigal he he blows it on friends and parties and hookers and drugs and all sorts of terrible things but finds himself quickly with nothing he's wasted it so he's the prodigal so how on earth could we say that the lovely father in this story, this, this man of moderate means who sort of looks after his estate responsibly, how could he be a prodigal? Tim Keller was the one who opened my eyes to this. I'm not sure. I mean, if, if Ecclesiastes, the book, is true, then there's no really new ideas. But when I read this in Tim Keller's book, it was a new idea. Can I have the next slide? So Tim Keller says, 
The really wasteful one, in one way of looking at it, is the father. Who made the father say yes when the younger son comes and says, I want all your property, everything I'm going to get when you're dead? Nobody made him give it to him. He could have just said, no, that's dumb, you're dumb, back to the field. Couldn't he? Don't be so stupid. Moreover, he could have taken offence because what the son is saying actually is basically, I'm really quite bored waiting for you to die. Normally I only get the inheritance when you're dead, so could you hurry it along? Hurry up and, and drop dead so I can have the money. This son is, is a real pain, isn't he? <laughs> Reminds you of anyone. The, the thing is, the father does an experiment where he says yes to a bad request. And that is why Tim Keller says, God is the prodigal. He is throwing all his jam and clotted cream to this younger son who he knows is just going to waste it. But he does it anyway. He does it anyway. God gives good gifts to his children, even though we're not that responsible and brilliant with using them. He doesn't, he's not the probation officer. He's not kind of following us like a spy. He's saying, yes, you know, you need food, I'll give you food. If you need money, there is money. And sometimes I can pray very much and he doesn't give me anything and I don't know why. I'm like, God, please, a little more money and then there's no more money to be had. And that's very hard for me because I see this son who got everything he asked for and then blew it and then God forgives him anyway. And suddenly, who am I in this story? I'm the older brother once more, aren't I? Why is it always the bad guys who get everything they want I'm here being a very, very good boy and getting nothing in return. What about this older brother? I love the older brother because the older brother is me, really. Um, well, first I was the younger brother. I think now I'm the older brother. But when wonderful things start happening to everybody else, my first response is always this grumpiness. So I'm like, oh, wish I had a million pounds in a plain giant house but the young, the older brother has a different kind of problem the younger brother has an obvious problem which is that he is terrible with money and shouldn't be trusted with it but the older brother has a different problem the older brother is jealous in his heart and grumpy and he he feels entitled in a very similar way actually to how the younger son felt entitled to his share because Let's face it, the father has divided the estate and the younger brother has taken his half off. Now it's gone. It's in the pockets of drug dealers and party organizers in some foreign country. But the, what, what, there's, there's still a farm. You know, there's still a house and there's still some property left. But who does that belong to? Kind of belongs to the older brother, doesn't it? He's like, well... Don't really agree with that, but at least he's gone. And I know that the rest of what's left is mine. But then the younger brother comes back and it's like, oh, my son, my son, my son. And I'm, I'm going to have to halve my inheritance for this idiot. 
He's so jealous and so judgmental and he can't believe that nice things happen to other people but not to him. And that pain and jealousy makes him angry with his father. And he says, Dad, why the barbecue? Why are we having whole roasted calf and barbecue sauce? And you never do this for me. And what does the father say? He says, see these cows in the field? They're all yours. They were all already all yours. This property is yours. If you wanted a barbecue with your friends, you should have just had one. Whatever you like. Tuesday, Sunday, whatever you want. It's your property because you live in my house and you're my son and my child and you have my authority and my resources. It belongs to you. You feel like you've been working. What does he say? He says, I've been working like a slave. A slave. That's how he thinks of his dad. He thinks his dad wants him to work like a slave with no pay. His dad's saying, listen, all the property is yours. You want barbecues? Have barbecues. You want to have parties round for the fret with the friend? Do. More the merrier. Do you see how great the love is that God has lavished upon us, that we could be his children, not his slaves? The whole generation of Christians have believed that we're supposed to be slaves of God in a way that like we get no pay until we're dead and God's saying look I've got so much clotted cream and jam that I can't wait to just bounce you with but you're so busy being judgmental about other people you won't even listen to the fact that you can have it now and that is why the father is up on the roof looking in the distance. And when the son does come home, who's more pleased than dad? No one. And he comes running down the street like this with his robe riding up and he slaps his arms around him. And his son's trying to give him this speech of, oh, father, I've done very wrong. I know you can't accept me as a son. You know, I'll, I'll just be a servant or a, a hired worker like a laborer. I'll just work for you. How about that? And he can't even finish the speech because the dad's a Kissing him and hugging him and crying all over him and snotting all over him. And he just can't wait to give him the royal robe and welcome him home. And Jesus is just saying, I, I think he added those sorts of turns, but Luke was too proper to add them in. But <laughs> the thing is that Jesus sort of stops and says, well, who are you in this story? What do you want to be like? Because I know who God is like. God is like that. God, that's what he's like. It, it, um, when Luke does record it in the gospel, if, if you want to read it in chapter 15 there, there's three parables that come together. The lost sheep, where there's a shepherd and he's got 100 sheep, but one of them gets lost. So he leaves the 99 in a safe space and he goes off and seeks for the lost sheep until it's found. And then he's got this great joy at the end because he's found his lost sheep. He said the same with a, a lady who's got a little saving of, of some silver coins and she's got 10 of them, but she loses one one day. And so she turns the house upside down to try and find this lost treasure. And when she finds it, she gathers all her friends and says, celebrate with me. I found it. I found my lost treasure. And in that way, you can see the, the prodigal son, don't judge him. He's just lost. That's all. He's just lost. And he's lost because of his own rotten decisions. But the coin was lost. It never did anything to anyone, did it? It was just lost. The sheep was just being a sheep. That's why it was lost. 
silly old sheep, aren't they? But the young son was just being what hot-headed young men are just like. And we grieve for them when they're doing the fast living thing, don't we? And we have family members and colleagues and co-workers and they make such rotten decisions and they have to then face the consequences of their appallingly bad decision. And we think, well, good lesson being learned here. I'll stand in judgment over you. But the father is just like, I can't wait till this guy comes back. I'm going to slap him the biggest hug he's ever received. I just cannot wait. And his eager expectation is that his son will, to quote Jesus, come to his senses. And I know what it is like to love somebody who I'm just desperate to come to their senses. But if I was to try and do things to them and make them realize what an idiot they are, it wouldn't even work, even if I was right, would it? It just doesn't work. You can't control people to make them make better decisions, except that when they do make great decisions, you can slap your love on them and say, listen, what a great job you've done walking down the street. <laughs> do you see that? Like, that's what he's being rewarded for. He hasn't done anything. He's not, the father isn't legitimizing the terrible decisions. He's just saying, look, I love you. Let's make good decisions together. This is what I want from you. And so you might be sitting in church feeling like a bit of a lost son or a lost sheep. You might think, you know, I don't even know who this God is. But this is what he is like. If you will get close to him, he might look ever so frightening and terrible, all sort of sat on a throne surrounded by six-winged, four-faced angels or whatever it is that's flatting around him. All these piles of people throwing crowns at the floor and crying and yelling and screaming. It's hard for us when it's like that sometimes. It happens in church. I love it. Just the other week, somebody sort of crying and weeping on the floor and just freshly aware of God's incredible love for her. And I thought, this, this is the good stuff. Because all of us can do very well being ever so polite and well-mannered and responsible with the resources that God has given us. But if we will not show that abundant love to the lost, then we won't be like our dad. And, um, you know, I'm a British bloke. When Jesus came to live in the Middle East, people on this island still painted themselves blue and ran around naked chopping off each other's heads. That's my culture and heritage. One very civilized. <laughs> Thank the Lord that Christ has come to the UK. The thing is, we, we needed him all that time. And sometimes we can fall so low that our need for him is ever so obvious. And that's one of the reasons why so many people find Jesus at the lowest ebb of their life. Because it's only through our lack that we're suddenly aware of how great our need is for him. And also how unable other things like money and prosperity and family and work and happiness are to actually satisfy this deep need we have to be intimate with God. The only thing that will do it is actually being close to God actually walking back, crossing the river, over the country, down the road, back to dad's house where we can be like him. 
The Bible teaches us numerous places. There's too many to mention. Romans 8 is the best one for me. It's in love that he has destined us to be transformed into the likeness of his son. Jesus came and he said, look at me. Anyone that's seen me has seen the Father. I'm what God is like. And all those prostitutes and fast living people and that the older brother was very much judging, those were the friends of Jesus, weren't they? He didn't stand in judgment over the, over the ones who'd failed and the ones who were lost. If he did stand in judgment, it was definitely over the people that definitely should have known better who thought they had God fooled because their hearts were rotten, but their outside looked ever so spick and span. May church never be like that, brothers and sisters. We want to be like our Father who is able to radically love, radically, to transform them into his own nature, this hope, this, this destiny we have to be like God. It's not just about power and taking over the earth. And if you're a Christian fascist, I'm telling you to cram it and not. I want us to be lovers. I want us to be people who are able to give what we have to others, even knowing they're not going to be that responsible with it. You know, in my work with people who are suffering from the travail of addiction in the worst way, They are judged all the time by everyone. They don't need more judgment to set them straight. You know, they need the one person to hug them. Even that probably won't work. And it's hard for us when we love fallen people who have just squandered it all. And it is easier to sit in judgment away from them and just say, look at the terrible decisions they've had, you know, play with fire, get burned, that's the deal. It just does us no good. It does them no good. It does nobody any good. And it's not what God is like. He comes to to change us with intimacy. And it's from that point that I want us to kind of respond to this message by drawing close to God afresh. So would you please stand with me? And I'm going to teach you how to do that a little bit if you want to learn. Some of you I know have already been doing this for longer than I've been alive, but it helps us to be refreshed in the call to come closer towards his heart. Because it, like I said, it is possible to believe in him, but keep him at arm's length. You know, when, when you're in a family, you, you can choose how you relate to dad. And if we keep him comfortably far off and sort of thumbs up to the idea, but that's it. We will have missed something really, really beautiful that I would love us to gather together and and find. So just in your hearts, try and use your imagination. Try and imagine what it's like walking down that hill and finding the Father running out towards us. And just remember that fear that maybe you felt. God is too holy for me. He's too righteous for me. He's too powerful for me. I've got to Offer him a proposal to do some work for a wage or something like that. Rubbish. He just cannot wait to pour his love over you prodigiously. That's who he is. How great is this love that he would look at me and accept me straight away.
the second I'm willing to come, he's already there. Doors already open. He's already wild-eyed with excitement to be with me, to meet with me. Father, I need you so much. And all of my best laid plans that I've made without you are doomed to be so much dross. Will you gather me into your arms, Lord? We don't all need the explanation. We need the intimacy. We need the hug. We need the love. It is your kindness, oh God, that leads us to repentance. It is your dazzling grace and mercy that teach us to believe. And it's such a hard thing to believe, Lord God, that you could love someone like us. We know the dark holes we've been in. But you love us anyway, all the more. So, oh Lord, teach me how to draw near to you in my heart to be changed by who you are and what you're like. To do what earthly adoption could never do and to change my DNA and my nature so that I'm like you instead of like someone else. Oh God, you give us your name and your nature and it's a more generous gift than we could ever describe. But Lord, there is a nearness that's beyond words. We cry out for that here today. Be near to me, O oh God.